Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So we have a very special guest today, Anna Sargent. Anna is here to talk with us all about books. Anna, welcome. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. When I learned about it, I just started binge listening. So. Oh my gosh. So yeah. <laughs> the early days of the podcast, you know. We didn't know anything. <laughs> So tell us, how did you get started publishing? And when did you know that you wanted to work in the publishing fields? Yes, I knew I wanted to work somehow in children's literature when I was a classroom teacher. So that's actually my background is preschool, elementary and middle grade education. And I was teaching in the classroom and I really didn't love anything about teaching other than the times when I got to read to the kids. And so I fell in love with that. And actually stopped classroom teaching to become a tutor so that I could take classes for writing for children. So that was really where my trajectory started was in the room with the kids, seeing how words transformed their imaginations and their learning processes and all of that. And then how did you make your way into the industry? So after I took classes on writing, I landed a job in curriculum development and I did curriculum writing and freelance writing and editing for a long time. And it was after that, that I had built up a resume of editing other people's books and doing some work for hire books of my own, along with curriculum that I was able to pivot and get a job as an editor for a small publishing house in Nashville. And I was a children's book editor. I actually served as the art director as well. And so I got the full scope of what it is to make a children's book come to life, which is super fun. And since then, I have moved over to Sourcebooks Explore, which is their nonfiction children's department. And that was just in February of this year. Congratulations. Thanks. That's wonderful. Yes. It's been fun. A lot of fun. So I can still work from Nashville um, with that job, which is... Yeah, not necessarily industry standard yet. I know certain publishing houses are having more jobs be remote, but Sourcebooks has, at least in this department, I can work from a different city because Sourcebooks is outside Chicago. So That's awesome. We love yeah. a good remote option. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And Sourcebooks so, strikes me as very forward thinking too, so it makes sense. Yes. The growth mindset is top of mind for everyone in leadership, just constantly thinking through, okay, instead of saying, no, it hasn't worked before, asking instead the question, how might it work? That sort of thing. And so this is just one of the areas in which they thought, how might this work? And the pandemic kind of forced the hand in terms of it has been working for all of our employees, so maybe it could work for new ones. So tell us what makes for good children's nonfiction? Oh, so much makes for good children's nonfiction. I think what makes good children's books in general, though, are the same thing that make good adult books. If it's a story that's being told, which can be nonfiction or fiction because there's narrative nonfiction. It's just how big that gap feels 
at the beginning of the story and then closing it in as you move along and all the hiccups along the way and all the emotions the protagonist faces along the way. And you can even have that with an animal, perhaps, who's on the migratory path. Or you can have that kind of writing in nonfiction, that closing of the gap. And I think there's other nonfiction where the gap is simply being closed through expectation versus reality. Like a kid comes to a book and they don't know much about the topic yet. And so they think it's a thing, but actually you're going to teach them about the water cycle in a really fun and interesting way. So the gap's closed that way. But overall, I think all stories and all books, if there's tension in them at all, is what keeps the pages turning, even in nonfiction. So to piggyback off of that, say you have a writer and they have a really good idea, but they don't know where to start. What are some tips or first steps you can give them? So they have the idea already, but they don't know where to start with the manuscript. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that there's probably hundreds of ways into most ideas. So this is why when I used to teach writing, I would say the idea is 1% of what you've got. I think a lot of people think their really cool idea is probably 50% of what they've got, but actually it's much, much smaller than that. And so I would say start with the original impulse for the idea, maybe. If it was a character, then start with a character. If it was a concept, then start with that. If it was a rhyme, if you had a little jingle in your head, just put that down. I do think that the creative process is gonna have to ramble and journey for a lot of writers, especially with children's books, because usually it is that idea that people want to kind of wrap up and encompass for a kid. But a lot of times the manuscript drafts are going to be coming and you're just going to keep doing them. You're going to do 60 drafts perhaps of the idea. And so you're going to end up with where you've landed is different than where you started, but you needed that starting place. You needed that rawness. So I'd say start with the rawness, but don't expect that it'll necessarily be where the manuscript ends up. So interesting. I love how we talk about process and we talk about like the inspiration. And then a lot of writers think that the inspiration is like, oh, I have it. It's here. I'm going to put it on a plate. I'm going to give it to you. But then it's just such a bigger process than most people really understand. And so I think that puts you in such an interesting way. Now that I also know that you're a teacher. Me too. We'd have to talk about that for a drink someday if I ever moved to Nashville. But tell us about your experience being both a writer, a teacher, and an editor. And what does your experience at each side of the desk say to each other? So I think I mentioned that I fell in love with children's books in the classroom and started learning the writing process first. So I started as a writer. And I think knowing what it is to try to write for kids gives me a lot of sympathy and even empathy being a teacher and an editor because I know how much passion is in it. I know how much love and heart and desire to do right by kids and desire to give them what they need and desire to change the world. Like I know all of that's in the books. So I do think that because I worked on that side of the desk for a while, Whenever a manuscript comes in, I immediately see what the writer wants to be doing. I think the question is just how much work has been put into it in the revision process, in the critique process, and that sort of thing to where what's on the page is actually conveying what that initial impulse was. And there's just so much work that's put in to making those two things unite. And so as an editor, I often am very hands-on then with the development because I 
I want to help shape it to become what the vision originally was. And a lot of times, even when it comes to my desk, it's still not quite there. So very hands-on editor because I was a writer, very empathetic. I also think now that I'm in the industry, I do understand that rejections don't mean that your writing is quote unquote bad. I know I always heard that, but I didn't really get it. And I think I get now what that means. It means that it's not resonating on a soul level with the editor, if we want to describe it that way. Because an editor has to give 12 to 18 months to the project, they can't just intellectually like assent to, this is a good idea and this is a well-executed manuscript. It actually has to go past that. And I think I would say that I've learned that now. And so as a writer, I just have to be easier on myself. If someone doesn't want to print what I wrote, it's not because I'm not a good writer. Well, I think it's so interesting if you think about nonfiction and you think about the classroom and curriculum and the uproar that is that right now, which we don't need to go into. But I do think teachers' best tools are nonfiction books, the classroom. And if you can have a concept and you can create a center and kids love nonfiction, and if you create something where they're going to activate their own learning and start creating that base yeah. knowledge, that it's almost like a learning trap. And I've never really thought of that, but I think that's what Sourcebooks does so well. They're like, I'm going to teach you about stars. And you can almost see that book throbbing over in the corner. It's so incredibly important because a textbook, while good, is never going to do what a book does. Oh, yes. As an editor, the books I'm looking to acquire are the ones I call it like uniting the head and the heart as yeah. closely as possible, like where the emotions and the intellect are so interwoven through the book. Like you can see that inside the child that's happening, that they're like super compelled by it, whether it's because it's funny, whether it's making them sad, whether it's making them intrigued, whatever that might be. And the facts are coming through about the science or the history or that sort of thing. Yes. I love how you described, like, it's almost pulsing from the bookshelf. Yes. Those yeah, are the books I, I, I want. Very spazzy <laughs> teacher. I'd be like, do you see them? They're pulsating over there, kids. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, they're speaking to you. They're yelling out. <laughs> What's something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry? So piggybacking off what I said before, I think now that I'm here, I do realize how important the market is and that it's so much a business, not in a negative way, but in a, we want to get these books in your hands. And because we want to get these books in your hands, there has to be a way in. And if we can't see a way in, again, even if it's a great idea, and even if the manuscript is lovely, I won't acquire it probably because it has to match. The business and creativity have to go together. And coming from a writing or curriculum development, book development background, being on that side of the desk, I was like, well, if I could just get that one sentence more perfect or that sort of thing, then they'll take it. And it's like, that probably isn't the thing. <laughs> That's the reason they're not taking it. It's just as much a business decision as it is a creative one. And in the beginning, because I've only been in book publishing a few years, I was like really disturbed by that. And now I understand better. It's not something that's disturbing because those types of books that are printed 
they might not get into that many people's hands. And what we want to do, a source book's motto is books change lives. That's what we want. We want books out there that are changing lives. So if there's a place in the market for it, awesome, let's run with it. But that always does have to play into the decision making. I think that's really good for writers to hear, mainly because a lot of times they take rejection so personally. And because they take it so personally, their thought always goes to, I'm a horrible writer. My book keeps getting passed on. I'm not getting as many full requests. And they're like, I don't understand because my beta readers love it and all right. the people like it. And I have to keep telling them it's not really 100% about that. You can be a very right. good writer, but you're trying to have somebody else come in and say, okay, here we go. We're going to take this on. But we still have to be able to make money off of it. We have to still find a way to make money off of this. And if they can't, they're not really going to want to pick it up. So it's that weird balancing act that you were talking about that I don't think writers take as much into consideration as I think they should. And I think it's important to take into consideration as a writer when it comes to the rejection process, not as much necessarily when it comes to what you're going to write about, because I do think if you let the market influence your creativity too much, then that can be detrimental to the creativity. So there's another balancing act <laughs> that we all have to do. In a sense, it's good. It's not that it's the small details that make a rejection, though. People always think it's that one comma they put in slightly the wrong place that's really going to do it. And I frankly never even notice stuff like that. So at least we don't feel like we have to be perfect in that way. Oh, yeah. A lot of that gets done further down the line. It's good to have a polished manuscript, but it's not the top priority for when I'm reviewing manuscripts anyway. A bunch of writers are sighing right now. <laughs> it's amazing. So twist a little bit to something totally new. Can you tell us your experience about the Austin Film Festival? Yes. So I lived in Austin for 14 years. And so I got connected to different communities there. And one of them was with a woman on the board of the film festival. And so I got to go and attend all the writing classes just as part of being her friend, essentially. And what I noticed in conversations about screenwriting is how similar they are to conversations about picture book writing. Because what you're doing is you're laying out a blueprint for the images that are going to come. So there were some great takeaways from that experience being both a writer and editor for kids because honestly, there's less pressure, I think, around having a manuscript that it felt like this was final. In screenwriting, a lot of times they talk about nothing's really final here. <laughs> like You're going to pass this off and so many more people are going to touch it. I think at one point someone said maybe 5% of your words will be the same um, in the movie, the final movie as are in the manuscript. And I was just thinking, how is that helpful for picture book writers? Because a lot of times when it goes to the agent, it gets edited. When it goes to the editor, it gets edited. Even the illustration process, once the illustrations are laid out, it's like, actually, this description would be better than that one. Or we can even take out that whole description you used with words because it's in the imagery. So just this idea that picture book writing is actually very collaborative when you look at the whole project overall. And so that was fun to kind of notice. And then I also one year participated in the festival. I wrote a fiction podcast with a couple of friends and we made it to like the second to final round. So we got to do all of the 
insider stuff. That was just a lot of fun. It's fun to be around creatives. It's fun to be around super smart, interesting people who just have ideas flying everywhere. But yeah, that's been my experience. Hold on. You wrote a fiction podcast? Tell us about this fiction podcast. (laughs) So it was a murder mystery, kind of YA, but it was a downer. And the truth is... (laughs) We never made it. We only just wrote what was necessary for the competition, which wasn't even a full series. It was like the first three or four episodes with the synopsis and an outline and all of that. But yeah, people review it. You get to meet with folks who are in podcasting and talk about your project, pitch your project to see if they'd want to buy it, like that kind of stuff. The film festival is actually really great for screenwriters of all stripes and fiction podcast writers. I feel like you're put here today. So I can be like, that's right. <laughs> I taught screenwriting and I would always use picture books because the tension in a picture book has to be so clear no matter what. I feel like the secret sauce that's often missing is like what makes the kid lean closer to the reader or it makes that page. And I think that's what television does. And that's why they're an interesting duo. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And the other thing is like in screenwriting, Every word matters in terms of moving the plot along. Dialogue is so key to to have in there only things that are contributing to the story. And the same is true about picture book manuscripts, obviously, because you have to write a whole story in 500 words or less. Nowadays, if you could put it in 300, we'd appreciate it. And you're going to teach them something and it's going to be amazing. And it's going to vibrate. Exactly. What do you wish other writers knew about things on your side of the desk? I think that'll be really helpful for them, especially because you are a writer yourself. So I do think sometimes it feels like no one cares about your book as much as you do. And the truth is that might actually be the case because it originated in you. But then there's this idea that maybe they actually don't care because they're not getting back to me or because I'm not seeing the results that we all were hoping for or something like that. And the truth is, I'm stoked about the books that I've acquired. Like, I love them with a burning passion. I think that they're magical. I think that they're powerful. I think that they're like transformative. I just, I get so excited about a book that really sings. And so if the communication isn't flowing or if the success isn't there, it isn't because at least your editor and most likely your agent and honestly, your illustrator, and you could just keep going down the line. They all love the book too, like a lot, because we're not in this job for the money. They all say that. We all know that. We're not in this job for the easy hours. Everyone knows that. Like we're in this job because of how much what you're doing as a writer changes lives, like really impacts either kids or teens or whoever you're writing for. And we just want to be your advocate and as much of an encourager in that as possible, even if sometimes we fail at that. What do you think would be really good for writers to know isn't as scary or hopeless as they may think it is? Because I know if they're feeling already, oh my God, nobody cares about my story, especially if they are getting rejections, what do they need to know that may help them move forward? Yeah, I think something to keep in mind is no's aren't and rejections aren't broad. I think we interpret them as broad, even end up applying them to like our own personhood. Oh, 
that book is bad, which means my writing is bad, which means I'm a bad person. We can think of them as extremely broad when in fact, most rejections are extremely specific. They're extremely like, oh, I actually like this person's tone or their pacing or their voice, but this concept is already in my list or this book has been done a lot, so I'm not going to take a risk on doing another. Like the interpretation doesn't match the reality, I think, which is that it's a specific rejection of that one thing that honestly in five years, a bunch of people might want. So I just think keeping broad perspective on the industry and your work and continuing to just sharpen who you are as a creator. There is no industry without authors. I just want to be such an advocate of authors. Like we have nothing (laughs) unless you're doing the work and creating. And so just hear that rejection. I know the common phrase is like not the right time or not the right person, but however specific you can make it in your head so that you can just tuck it away so that you can be like, okay, moving on from that because they didn't want 10,000 things specifically though, not broadly. Do you think that we need writers to keep producing so that we can continue to bless the world with their work? And so any kind of trick you can do in your own head (laughs) to move past the rejection, please do it. (laughs) That's true. I've told writers before, especially when they're getting rejections, is that you may be writing into the future. Just because this one book hasn't been picked up, it doesn't mean that it won't. It could mean a million things. It might not be the time for it. And the next book you write will be the one that lands you the agent. So it's not wasted time and effort that you've put into doing this. So it's not a bad thing. I was watching YouTube and a writer has done this thing now with rejections where instead of making a goal of getting an agent, her goal is to get like a hundred rejections. That's her smart. Yeah, her goal is to actually get the rejections. It's a way to trick her mind into being okay with it because she's still reaching a goal. That makes sense. Yes. See, that's a great trick. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is such an interesting concept. I know it's an out there concept, but like we're preparing children for a future that we don't even understand what the future is. And so in some ways, we're all in different levels of kind of awareness about what we think developmentally kids, but we don't even know what the realities or school is going to look like within 50 years. It could be something totally different. And so if we look at it as ideas are fluid, it's important to look at our past and our future. And it does ease the pressure. Like it does just allow it just to be what it is. I have all kinds of ideas that are bad ideas, but maybe they're not bad. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So who knows? It's interesting. So tell us about your critique group, Anna. Yes, I started a critique group over 10 years ago when I was first taking those classes on how to write for kids. And the composition has changed a bit, but there are three of us that have basically been around that long. And all YA middle grade or children's writers. We've dabbled in other things. Other people have tried, well, to nonfiction. Several are working writers, one traditionally published, but others more like work for hire. And some who are just hobbyists at writing, but I like having a broad spectrum of writers because critiquing YA fantasy is very different from critiquing middle grade adventure. 
Oh my gosh, you must be so popular. I'd be like, where's Anna tonight? Oh, she can't come. What do you mean she's not here? <laughs> <laughs> <Pressure>. I <mean> <laughs> But I enjoy it. That's why we've stuck together for so long is because we're book people. At every cocktail party, you don't meet all book people. <laughs> so when you find your people, you're, yay, <laughs> we're sticking together with this. But I will say that being in the critique group is actually what opened my eyes to, I might enjoy editing more than writing. So that took me on a path towards essentially what I view as being an advocate for other writers, putting your eyes on their page to help them figure out what's still missing or what needs to be tweaked or something like that. It felt right to me, like it felt, oh, this is a skill that I have. And so cultivating that, I was able to implement it in work and then land different jobs. But I do think that all the best writers also know how to revise, whether it's because they have their own intuitive concepts around editing or because they listen to critique partners or beta readers or whoever. And it's a humbling thing. I think my critique group was probably the first thing in life that really humbled me because I honestly think I'm just a better person because I understand feedback and taking it and sitting in the pain of it and being like, oh, I'm not this genius wordsmith that I thought I was because I got A's in high school English, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, it's been a very sharpening, transformative experience. I don't know the right words to use, but not just as a person who does words for a living, but also just as a person. Could you talk with us about the literary scene in Nashville? I can because I, again, have been pretty COVID cautious. So there is an SCBWI. Uh, region here that's pretty active. Unfortunately, by the time I like said, here I am, they had already planned all their faculty for this year's <laughs> conference, but I know that lots of people came and there's indie booksellers here. So I have been to those and lots of events. People do love books here. I will say they also love their country music here <laughs> because that's the thing most people think of Nashville and rightfully so because the talent here is top notch. If you go down to Broadway and listen to these cover bands, it's like, I bet you these people are on records, like in the background or something. They're definitely working musicians here because the music quality is really great. All I had known was it was the bachelorette capital of the country. So. <laughs> you see that too. Definitely. <laughs> Isn't there some kind of vehicle where like everyone's riding a bike around a bar? Yes. Yes. There's those. And then there's the tractors where it's not a real tractor, obviously, because it's not turning up the asphalt, but it looks like a tractor, like a John Deere tractor. And you just see them and there's a driver. And then there's all the bridal parties just like, woo, riding in the back of it down the street. <laughs> That's so good weird. times. That's so weird, but I love it. <laughs> Tell us about aha moment when everything came together. As a writer, I'd say my experience was writing a book once and it was like a compilation of different inspirational things for kids. And my critique group just kept being like, I think you're trying to say three things in this one piece. And I was like, yeah, but all those three things are important. And then I realized, oh, I'm saying three different things, not one thing that three things can circle around. And somehow that like totally revolutionized 
my career since then. And I understand now that theme is the foundation of everything, whether it's a thousand page novel or whether it's 300 word picture book, you have to have the theme as the foundation, like the one thing that you are saying, and then you can have three things circling around it, 10 things circling around it, a hundred things circling around it. And you have to keep on aiming at that theme. And I don't even know why it hit me in that project that I was working on. Honestly, I think I just wanted to make my job easier. And I was like, if I'm trying to bring these three disparate things together. That's harder than if I just focus on the one. <gasps> focus on the one theme, which is what they've been telling me in classes. So that was an aha moment for me. <laughs> and then as an editor too, I can definitely pick up on now if people are essentially trying to do too much in their one piece had that problem. That's a lesson that's taken me a long time to learn. I have too many ideas all the time for everything. Yes. And then I'll say from a business standpoint, my husband actually helped me with an aha moment because I was like, oh, this manuscript has come in and I love it so much, but I just don't know how I'm going to be able to sell it. And he was like, but isn't your job as an editor to make sure you can sell it? for the author. And this circles back to what I said about 30 minutes ago, which was, oh, it really does have to have both. And I really had to grieve that, but then I had to understand it. And that was definitely an aha moment of to do right by this work. I need to find a way that it will get into people's hands and I need to help it be the best like craft it can be. But I really have to marry those two things to do my job right. Can you tell us about Bridge to Terabithia and how it changed your life? Yes. So I was teaching fourth grade and obviously reading the types of books that you would give older than chapter book kids, middle grade readers. And I read Bridge to Terabithia and I just cried because I hadn't read it as a child. Somehow I had missed reading it when I was a kid. So only encountered it as an adult and was extremely moved, like beyond what most adult books do for me. It was the first book of children's literature that I read that I realized you can be just as smart and just as heavy and just as respectful, I think, of children that you can be of adults. If children can handle this in literature, I'd love to be part of what children can handle in literature. Like I was just really compelled by the author's vision really for what she could offer kids, which is a safe place to process hard things. And so I was just really moved by, oh, this is what I want to do with my life after reading that book. So I'm sure there are writers out there who are wondering if they can pitch you directly. What are the rules about that and what are you looking for? Yes, at Sourcebooks, we do have the general rule that we take from agented authors and then in the Explore, which is the nonfiction space, if you're an expert in your field, then we can receive a pitch directly from you. So whatever that field of study might be, if you're looking to write nonfiction for children in that area, then feel free to email us directly. And my email is Anna.Sargent, last name, at sourcebooks.com. Where can they find your submission guidelines? Yes, on the Sourcebooks website, you'll be able to find my description of what I'm looking for, 
like an editor one pager and the rest of our team there's a couple other editors even on the nonfiction explore team and we do obviously have children's fiction it's called jabberwocky which is such a cute name we have an adult fiction line i mean sourcebooks is publishing in every space awesome do you have any upcoming projects like fiction podcasts you're working on oh personal projects i think i'll get back to that after a few more months here at Sourcebooks, I'm trying to still figure out a lot of the processes and procedures, just like working in the company as well as doing the job of editor. But I can feel that it'll come on again. <laughs> what are your favorite podcasts? Hidden Brain, honestly, is like my favorite podcast because it's the stories you haven't heard, the psychology of the human mind. I can get really excited about that type of stuff. Chris, thank you so much. This is lovely. Thank so you. appreciate your insight. Thank you. Yes, it was so fun. Go writers, go authors. We need to and love you. (laughs) We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.